Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. Okay, out there in podcast land, I'm here today, the Australian Citizen Science Association on the sunny, sunshine coast, Queensland, Australia. And I'm here with Lindy Owen. Orwin. Orwin. Always get it wrong, but that's okay. And Randy Orwin. Did I get it right? All right. Oh, fantastic. And they're both from the Kululala. Did I get that right? Yep. Coast Care Association Incorporated in Queensland, Australia. Thanks for coming on the show tonight. Well, what is the Kululala Coast Care Association? What, what is it? So we're an organisation that covers a small area with only about 5,000 residents. That's nested between Noosa and Gari, which most people would probably know as Fraser Island in the past. We look after the coastal areas and do lots of rescues of turtles and we run the Kalula Bio Blitz. We have water watch programs. We do art programs with the wildflowers. We publish booklets for tourists to understand the nature of the area. We have about 80 members. We have 90,000 backpackers who visit a year. Oh, wow. So these are all volunteers. Yep, citizen science projects. Did you, like... From little kids, did you have interests? I started way, way back when I was teaching. So I taught biology and advanced environmental science to high school kids in America. Okay. And so I've always had a passion for it. And then I was also a wild, crazy fly fisherman. And so in order to catch more fish, I had to learn about the macroinvertebrates in the water so I could tie the flies that would match what was in the water at that point in time. So I've been involved in, in a long, long, long history of, of being out in nature, used to hike a lot by myself, spend lots of time at 10, 12, 13,000 feet above sea level, backpacking and hunting and fishing and, and knowing about nature made all that really much easier easier to do by knowing about all the nature and what was happening. And then Lindy and I met back in 2009, and we lived in Seattle for a while, but that wasn't working out weather-wise, and so we came back here to Australia. And when we moved to Rainbow Beach, we're like, oh, we need to get involved. And so the Coast Care Association advertised that they needed people to help with the Water Watch program. Oh, well. We signed up with Water Watch in 2014, and here we are now. And I left my job as a university researcher in technology and education and took the job as coordinator for Kalua Coast Care. So I did a, a sea change by location and a sea change in my job. Beautiful. Do you have different jobs within the Coast Care? So I'm the project manager and grant writer. Randy is our webmaster, data curator, uber geek. <laughs> <laughs> so we do a lot of tech stuff. We also help out at the Gimpy STEM Hub for Inspiring Australia. So we run a lot of projects for kids. What does it stand for? Science, Technology, Engineering and Maths. We have a festival called Steam Zone, which is Science, Technology, Engineering, Art and maps because we integrate the arts in interesting ways and we also do that in our work at Coast Care. Our Wildflower Women group is an art group who come out during the wildflower season because the Kalula National Park is really well known for its Wallum wildflowers. We publish booklets about it. The women go out for walks in the bush and then create all different types of art on a whole weekend. They make jewellery, silver jewellery, they do paintings, they make their own painting inks from 
found materials. They do textile work and all sorts of different arts that are inspired by the wildflowers. It's funny you say that. Today I've learned so much. And one of the things I learned early this morning was art is from the heart. So it's all about love. And one of the first lectures I went to this morning was a guy putting underwater statues in so coral could grow on them. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, there's so much art involved. And that was beautiful just to hear that. The biggest problem that scientists have is actually communicating with the public about science. So the one really great way to connect science to the general public is through art and experiences where they can learn science at the same time as having an emotional connection to an artwork. That can be in poetry, it can be in dance, it can be a play, it can be a film. You know, it doesn't have to be the traditional graphic arts only. We love to integrate because it's a great way to communicate. That's beautiful. One thing I heard also this morning, there's they're making art out of plastic collected from the ocean. We actually have a great big turtle that's made out of uh, marine debris. Oh, do you really? And Topsy the turtle sits down at the main beach, the main swimming beach, and it's made of chicken wire and it's stuffed with litter and it was made by the homeschooling group and right beside it is can collections. So it's a living art that is an ad for raising funds to save the turtles because we do the nest monitoring of all the turtles that are nesting along our 70 kilometres of beach. We also do all the marine rescues of turtles that are stranded. So they get driven down to Australia Zoo and rehabilitated and then we bring them back and release them back into the wild. Fantastic. The data... All this data is so valuable because in the future, AI is going to be more precise. The more data we can feed into it and it's going to help. Can you tell us a little bit more about data? Yeah, I can definitely do that. When you look at the work that we do with Coast Care, one of the things we do is collect a lot of data. We were a member of what's called Seagrass Watch. So we have 20 years of data from doing line transects and box transects. And then all of that data was sent to the Seagrass Watch people and added to their collection of data. The data that was talked about a lot at this conference was data from a product called iNaturalist. And iNaturalist is an app that anybody can take into the field and they can take a photo of something. And then they have AI that actually tries to figure out, what are you looking at? And it says, I'm pretty sure it's in this family, or sometimes it will say it's this species, and then that data goes into the iNaturalist network, which then the data that goes into there is pulled into the Atlas of Living Australia, or the ALA, which is the national database of species and diversity data for the whole country. Everybody here is trying to figure out how can we take that data that's being collected by citizen scientists, and how can can we make the scientific community believe that that is good, accurate data? And that's been a huge part of the conversation for me with a number of individuals who manage state databases that developers have to apply to get their development permits and they look at that database and go, no, you can't develop here because there's endangered species and you know all those kinds of things. Well, right now, citizen science globally, well over 80% of the data collected now is happening through citizen scientists. If you're a paid scientist, you don't have enough money to put an army out in the field like we can as citizen scientists. So we help collect data that the main scientific community 
community would never have access to because they just can't afford it and they don't physically have enough time to go out and collect that data on their own. So what you're telling me is citizen science is the muscle. Absolutely. They wear the muscle and the muscle's only getting bigger. It's getting bigger. And as a, like with our BioBlitz, in the first BioBlitz, we had about 700 records that we kept. So 700 observations. And that was a BioBlitz that was done all on paper. But then we're like, we got all that information. It's like, but we don't have any pictures of anything. We just have the scientists that said, oh, I saw this and I saw this. And we didn't have any GPS coordinates on anything either. That's not good data in today's world. We need to have a photo which acts as a verification that, yes, that's what I looked at. And then we need the location stuff. So we know, where did I find that thing? So year two of our Bibles, we said... All right, we're going to use this iNaturalist platform to collect our data. That was a bit tough because no one had ever heard of iNaturalist before. This was in 2019. We had to try and convince everybody that this was a good thing. So we ended up with about 900 records out of that second BioBlitz. And then our next BioBlitz, we had over a little over 1,300 records. And then the pandemic hit, and we didn't have a BioBlitz. And then 2022, we did our BioBlitz in November, and we had just under 3,200 records that were collected by literally the same number of people that we had at the other BioBlitzes. But because people were now confident in using the app, they could go out and they could do those collections. They could do it on their mobile devices, or we had people who were using their their digital SLR cameras, so they could just take all these photos, they could come home, they could load it up on their computer in the iNaturalist app, and then bulk import all of those records into the system. And then as the administrator of that project in iNaturalist, I had to work really hard to get people to set what's called a trust relationship so that I could see the endangered species data that they may have collected. Because by default, iNaturalist hides that information from the general public, because we don't want somebody going and finding an endangered or a threatened species and grabbing it and taking it with them. So they hide all that information. But if they're in our project, we need that information because we have certain status that we have to maintain with threatened freshwater fish species with wetlands info and to maintain our status as the as a Ramsar wetland of international significance. If we find that those fish are disappearing, we're not doing a good job taking care of that stuff. And so I have to get that trust relationship from them so that I can see all of that data and then I can pass that data onto the state. So data is just huge because at the end of the day, the state makes decisions about what's going to happen with developer applications and things like that. And without the data, they don't know if there's danger, endangered and threatened species out there. Wow. I'm a bit speechless after that. And it's really hard to get me to be speechless. <laughs> so we're... Where do you hope this data goes in the future? Well, I think in the future, we want as much data as possible going into a number of databases. In particular, in Queensland, we want it all to go into WildNet because WildNet is that database that controls the decision-making process when the government is asked for development proposals and things like that. But that also, we want that to all go into the Atlas of Living Australia, which is the data for the whole country and all the research data and stuff like that, because then researchers can grab that data, they can do reports on it, and they can do analysis on it and things like that. But the other nice thing is all of the data from my naturalist, that is what's called research grade, which means two thirds of the people who identified that at the species level agree that it's that species. 
space. So it's crowdsourcing, basically. So if the crowdsourcing, two-thirds of the folks say that's what that is, then that data automatically gets added to what's called the GBIF database, and that's the Global Biodiversity Database. That's the whole world. That right now, just the data coming in from iNaturalist, uh, I was just looking at a study day before yesterday, there are currently about 75 million records just for my naturalist in the GBIF database. Wow. And how many is in there in total? Don't know total in GBIF because GBIF has everything sucked in from every country's database. Okay. So we're talking hundreds of millions of records. My naturalist right now, I just looked day before yesterday, I think, and I think there's just under 123 million records in iNaturalist. Wow. That's pretty cool. And the data story is really important because the national park that we live right beside, there's almost no science about. So we're protecting this area because it's so significant and different to every other place in Queensland, and yet we know almost nothing about how it operates, what pollinators they have, what eats what, you know, which plant species are dependent on. We just know it's special and we should protect it, but we're not studying it enough. We're trying to collect baseline data, so at least we know what's there now. And then as climate change and other things affect it, then we can say, well, this is having a negative effect or a positive effect, and you can't protect something that you don't know how it works. That's exactly right. So it's really important for us to know as much about every species as we can. But biodiversity is kind of only one of our programs. We also do work on climate change, on sustainability, on the geomorphology of the area so we study the dunes and we try to protect them we have a big tourism there's 500,000 tourists go over to Gari from where we live and so there's only two ferries that go there one from Kalula and one from the northern end we want to know how those tourists are affecting it we want to educate them so we do a lot of volunteerism for example, about our turtles, we've written a book for kids and distributed a thousand of them to the campers who are, who are there over Christmas during the turtle season that teaches the kids about where their parents should be driving and shouldn't be driving and the life cycle of the turtles and how to spot turtle tracks and how to report turtle nests that they see laid or hatching. And so through that program of helping the kids understand what's there, we've also educated their families they're like little police, you know, it's get off the dunes, Dad. You shouldn't be up there on the on the dune grass. That stuff stabilises the dunes. Beautiful. But now we get reports every day about the turtles from the campers. So they've joined our army. Oh, fantastic. And it's brilliant. And we have people who walk their dogs every day on the beach and they spot tracks for us and they just call them in. People are doing the wrong thing. We used to be the ones on Facebook always nagging people when they'd put up a photo of parked up on the dunes or... Or whatever. But now 10 locals will hammer that person for that poor behaviour before we ever have to say anything. But they also call in the rescues. They help us pick up big, heavy turtles and get them to safety. We're trying to see our tourists as our allies. And we'd like to see a shift from adventure tourism, where people come and wreck the joint with their vehicles, to people who bring their vehicle to actually drive out and see the nature and enjoy the nature. Sure, yeah. Because it is such a unique place. I mean, we have forests with massive trees growing in sand and the only reason they can even grow there is because fungi transport the minerals from the sand to the trees. Oh, wow. Without that mycelium in the soil, nothing could grow there. Right. It's just 
saying. So I'm just trying to picture this in my head. I'm going to have to come up and have a look. You know that. It's magic. You'll love it. And the coloured sands are huge sand cliffs of all different colours. Like I think people have counted 46 different shades of ochre and brown and black and white and creams. And so we have this huge coastal cliffs of these coloured sands that are beautiful. And then there's estuary lagoons and then there's calm water and salt water and fantastic diving. We have the biggest breeding area for greener sharks at Wolf Rock. And so diving Wolf Rock is just an experience with the sharks and the mantas and just an awesome diving spot. Yeah, I've heard that. I haven't been there yet. Probably won't be driving back to Newcastle. I'll just keep going north. Absolutely. (laughs) Come on up. (laughs) So for the future, what do you hope for the future? I heard um, Costa say this morning, you know, it's not about hope. It's we want an action plan. So what's the action plan? We want to see the place loved. People use the term, oh, they love it to death, where we say, that's abuse it to death we want to see people who actually come there love it take their trash home with them help us with the citizen science while they're there get to know it we'll help them we publish beautiful pocket guides to the wildflowers with maps for the walks we want people to see and enjoy it but we don't want them to destroy it in the process so we'd love to see that shift away from come and you know churn up the beach doing donuts to come and help us get a turtle's nest through to that every turtle in that nest survives <laughs> yeah no that's i know down my way on the central coast of new south wales there was a turtle that actually laid eggs down there which is hasn't happened for decades and they cordoned it off and people were standing guard and all sorts of things waiting for the turtles to hatch it was beautiful we had the most wonderful experience the first year we started our turtle care a turtle came up and walked up the beach entry walkway you know when you're going down the yeah. beach from the car park and laid her nest right in the middle of that so we called the council and said we need some help to cordon off this nest because it's going to be there between 55 and 100 days so they put some fencing up we put some signage up and people would come down and take a picture of the fence because there was a turtle egg <laughs> and we were just super fortunate that normally they hatch out in the middle of the night and head towards the light of the sea because the sea is lighter than the land. And we went and checked them at about 5.30 one afternoon because we'd been out, you know, away all, all day. Normally we'd come back about 10 o'clock at night and check them. We didn't know if we'd last the distance. <laughs> so we checked them and they were starting to hatch right then in the daylight. So we just put word out on every social media, on text to everyone we could. Turtles were hatching and about 80 people people came down, watched the whole nest erupt out with all the little turtles and then stood as a guide down the side and they just fanned out down the beach. You had kids lying on the beach and people crying at the beauty of it. It was, And then it was all over town the next day and at school all the kids wanted to talk about was turtles <laughs> because they'd hatched in the daylight where people could see them. Oh, that's beautiful. It was very cool. School principal and his kids were away that day and, boy, were we in trouble for not calling him directly. <laughs> but... Every nest has to be dug up after afterwards because there's always a few little ones who can't get out because little turtles hatch by climbing on each other and they boil up by climbing on one another's back and out they all come. But if you're a bit of a straggler, you're left in the bottom of the nest, but they can survive three or four days in the bottom of the nest. 
So after they've all gone, we dig them out, count all the eggshells to see how many survived, how many didn't survive, and then get those little ones that are left, left. and yeah. save them. So the principal and his kids got to come down for that. <laughs> so we were, we were back in the good books. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Randy, what do you believe is the action plan for the? We want to change the behaviour of people when they come to the area. You know, We want them to love the area, but we want to teach people to do that. So one of our goals is we want to put in an environment center, an environmental education center, and an interpretive center in town. And then people can come and learn about everything that's there. Because we're both real techie oriented, we want to have some really amazing VR and AR things. So virtual reality and augmented reality experiences for people. But then the education side of that is we can bring in researchers from all over the world, students getting their PhDs and even undergrads and stuff like that, where they come and stay with us and we'll have accommodation in the place and then they can go out in the field and do work with scientists and things like that. As part of that, if we get accommodation available, when it's not full of scientists, then we can actually rent it out to the tourists and then that helps us fund our facility over the rest of the year. And that's a long-term strategy, but we have buy-in from our local council. They think it's a great idea to the point where they're trying to help find a block of land that we can actually use. A peppercorn rental, which I had never heard that term before until recently. And basically council says it's $123 a year and you don't pay any rates on the block of land or anything like that. We'll help you market it with the community and make things happen. So they're really excited to help us try and make that work. So if you know somebody that that has about 20 spare million bucks laying around, you know, we'd happily talk to them about, you know, building this center in town. We want it to be the hub of environmental education and research, which really helps us gain the knowledge that, as Lindy mentioned earlier, there's a lot we don't know about that park because there's not a lot of research that's been done in that park. And we just want to be able to provide the information and the data and everything for that so that over time, the term we use is a longitudinal study so that we can compare this year to 10 or 15 years down the road and go, oh, look, yeah, things are not looking really good on this kind of stuff, or things are looking good. We're, we're making an impact on saving those things. So that's really one of our biggest goals is to actually come up with a plan and the money to put in this big center in Rainbow. Beautiful. If anyone wants to give you $20 million or even want to come up and have a look at the place, where can they get in contact with you? Go to our website, which is is kalulacoastcare.org.au and Kalula's C-O-O-L-O-O-L-A and all our projects are there. If they want to give us $20 million, <laughs> come on over to our place. <laughs> um, or you can email us at president at kalulacoastcare.org.au. Facebook, we've got groups. If you want to come to our BioBlitz, just join the Kalula BioBlitz Facebook group. Let you know when the tickets are available and what's on and when they're on. But you have to get in quick. Last year's sold out in three days. Three days. That's for the BioBlitz? Yes. Oh, it's shivers. That's where we get 20 scientists in and we go from 7 o'clock in the morning till 2am and you can go on any of the surveys with a renowned scientist or an expert amateur naturalist in small groups of just about eight people and we're trying to map every living thing in the area. Oh, wow. No stone unturned. Absolutely. You're going out with people who know everything about the, their particular topic, so it could be ferns, it could be fungi, it could be possums, owls, birds, guys who are specialists at insects and spiders. And man, we have some really cool spiders, little spiders. <laughs> 
They're really interesting, every species. That sounds good. And one of the really cool things about spiders is our first bioblitz, we had one of the co-authors of the Australian Field Guide of Spiders. He came to be our spider expert. And at the end of the weekend, he said, we found 37 new species of spiders or 37 new undescribed. So they may have had them in someone's collection, but they've never been described. The following year, he wasn't going to come and do the bioblitz because he's an artist. And he's like, I'm not going to do spiders this year. I'm going to do art. But we said, well, what are we going to do about a spider specialist? He's like, I'll send one of my students. We're like, okay, so who is this student? And he said, oh, it's Ethan. He said, but Ethan's only 16. And we're like, only 16? And he knows enough about spiders? And he said, absolutely. So Ethan came the next year. The first thing Ethan said to me when he arrived was, okay, I know Robert got 37 new species of spiders last year. I'm going to beat him this year and get more than he did. (laughs) And at the end of the day, Ethan found 44 new species of spiders. So in two years, we had 82 new species of spider that were found at our bioblitz. From somebody that also probably hadn't left school yet. Oh, he wasn't. He hadn't left school. He's just in university this year. And over the last three months, he's been calling me to get the data about the permits things because he's actually doing the taxonomy of those spiders and getting them described. Fantastic. Beautiful. I love it. So people can come even when they're on holidays and get involved. It's turtle season now. So if you come up to Rainbow for a weekend, you can walk the beaches and look for turtle tracks and let us know. Come to our BioBlitz. If you move to the area, you can come and get involved in Water Watch, which is measured every two months. If you have an idea for a project, we'll work to find a grant to do something. So we get all the migratory shorebirds. And for years, there hasn't been a count because no one's been interested in that topic. They fly down from the Arctic. And so if you wanted, you were interested in shorebirds, we'd find the money to do a project on shorebirds. And mangrove watch, there's all sorts of things that we can be involved During in. During your spare time, you can go diving with the sharks at Wolf Rock. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and you could be taking photographs and adding them into iNaturalist. Oh, that sounds great. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. I've never done a couple before and I'm just so happy to, you know, that couple's come on. Well, it's something we love to do together and so we, we'll get out in the four-wheel drive or our kayaks and and we can do some science and do some good at the same time as getting out in nature. So, And we both enjoy that, so it's a great hobby for us. All the people out there, I'm really in the presence of Silent Achievers. These are the Silent Achievers and your story has to be told, and thank you for telling the story. Thank you. I don't know that many people would call me silent. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.